Today's topic is referendums in the European Union. The reason why we want to talk about this topic is because referendums are playing an ever-increasing role in political decisions and policy-related decisions in a lot of places in the world, especially here in Europe. So we're going to be talking about referendums that are related to EU matters, but also about referendums that happen in the European continent that have nothing to do with European-related matters. And before kicking off the episode, I want to quote someone who gave a speech on June the 24th, 2016. That person said the following. We should be proud of the fact that in these islands we trust the people with these big decisions. We not only have a parliamentary democracy, but on questions about the arrangements for how we are governed, there are times when it is right to ask the people themselves, and that is what we have done. The British people have voted to leave the European Union, and their will must be respected. The will of the British people is an instruction that must be delivered. It was not a decision that was taken lightly. I wish Mr. Cameron had known back then that the second most searched question on Google <laughs> after the poll stations closed on June the 23rd was, what is the EU? <laughs> So yep. UK citizens were just 100% sure that they may have perhaps made a, a terrible blunder and they wanted to know exactly what they had gotten themselves into. In any case, we're not going to talk today about Brexit. I know a lot of you outside uh, might be thinking about this because of the relevance and because of the importance, but this episode is not about that. This episode goes beyond that. And Brexit is just perhaps one of the most famous and recent examples of what a referendum is and the consequences that it may have, even if it's non-binding, as was the case with Brexit. The first question, therefore, uh, that I would like to put on the table is, what exactly is a referendum? And what, please tell me, what is the plural of referendum? Because I keep saying referendums, and I'm not sure what it is. Well, I guess a, a referendum or a referenda. Is that, is that the right plural? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> okay. I think it's actually the Latin word. Ah, Okay. And I looked it up and it said, in the dictionary, it said referenda. All right. Well, I suppose that, I mean, I don't find that surprising that the origin of that word would trace back to Latin roots, because it's a form of direct democracy, right? I mean, it's where you have the entire population vote on a particular issue and the will of the people should prevail. No, actually, I have to correct myself. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> and actually, it says plural referendums. I got to oh, break Lord. it to you guys. Okay. Both are correct. Ah, I see. Referendums and referenda. Okay. Then I'm going to go for referendums because that sounds way more natural. I'm going right, to... Actually, it's both, yeah. I'm just checking it right now. I'm oh, just going to go for referenda <laughs> to, you know, spicy it up a little bit. To sound smarter. It's like To, to sound whom. more Latin. I'm referenda. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, basically, I mean, it's uh, where policy decisions are made by the public. They take a decision on a particular issue. Or they just ask to express their opinion. Or that. Yeah, I mean, it could I mean, be take a decision or it could be just advisory referendum. I agree. Referendums are part of something that we call direct democracy. Because in a representative democracy, like the one in which most of us live, people also express their opinions and they also make decisions by electing people to make mm -hmm. those decisions for them. And in theory, those people should be reflecting the citizens' 
preferences mm -hmm. and their will. The difference with the referendum is that you are giving citizens a tool so that they can directly vote on a specific topic and not do it indirectly through elected representatives. Exactly. I think it's also important to know that today, although the direct democracy sounds, you would say, natural, it's actually, I think, a system which is never or is nowhere implemented in the world. I think there are a couple of regions in Switzerland which are very directly democratically organized. But even in Switzerland, which is an example of direct democracy, it's actually a semi-direct democracy. I think that's a word. So because they also elect a parliament, they have a council, but then they're asked like four times a year on average on, to express their opinion. So it's like both elements. And, yeah. and that is because in a modern society, direct democracy is not realistic. I mean, it originated in uh, Athens, where the men would get together and you know, ponder issues and uh, take a decision. Only and it was the, only yeah, the men. Exactly. And And, and, the, and the reason that they could do that, yeah, okay, well, three thousand people lived there, you know. Yeah, so yeah. They, they so it like, was only the men, but the the idea originated there that you know the entire population, and I'm doing quotation marks here, they would be able to just uh, discuss issues and come to a decision. But then, uh, you know, the average citizen has to work in today's society and has, you know, obligations. I mean, it's not like the yeah. Greek men back in the day who could just sit around and think all day long. And, yeah. you know, they had slaves and people do the work for them. So. Exactly. So only the man and only, I think, the nobles. I mean, within ah, like the okay. man, I think there was even like a, not, not even everybody could vote there. Yeah. Of course. Within and then limits. it was a super small society compared to like every modern society. True. But the point here is that the reason that we just don't simply have direct democracy is because in a modern society, it wouldn't work for all things. I mean, we have to, there's a limit to how many things you can be informed on and you can take a decision on. And that's why we have to entrust others to take those decisions for us. Exactly. And it's not only a matter of size. I know what you guys are thinking, but it's also about quality. And you can debate this, but uh, there is also a theory out there that says that people who represent citizens, so elected politicians, politicians and public administrators, they should at least have some kind of expertise. So they should be the better version of ourselves, although, of course, we know they are oftentimes not, not that version. <laughs> uh, but in theory, they should be able to make informed decisions. They should be able to lead society down the better path. And that is why we also trust them with these choices. That is Not necessarily the case, um, but we could all think about that one neighbor or that one friend or that one relative who would make an ill-informed decision if we were to allow him or her to decide on economic policy or foreign policy or whatever. That is also an additional reason why we have uh, elected representatives who are making these choices and also because we know that not everybody wants to be involved in politics all the time. In any case, referendums are a tool that governments can give uh, to citizens. And here in the European Union, they are becoming, since the 2000s, a more common tool. The Brits voting on whether they should remain in the European Union or the Irish voting on abortion rights, uh, the Romanians voting on gay marriage, etc., etc. Within the European Union, even though at the European Union level there is no procedure for referendum, There are certain instances in which EU member states can vote or hold a referendum to approve or disapprove certain choices that EU leaders make. Just in case you're wondering, there are different kinds of EU-related referendums that 
can be held. One is on membership, accession or withdrawal, just like we saw on Brexit. You can have referendums on treaty revisions. So when the treaty on the function of the European Union needs to be revised, which has happened six times, all member states have to approve it. And then some of them might decide to hold a referendum to do that. Uh, you can also have policy-related referendums, such as the referendums that have been held by Denmark and Sweden, uh, voting on whether they should adopt the euro or not, even though in theory they should be obliged to join the monetary union. And then you also have third-country referendums on the topic of European integration, meaning that these are countries that are not members of the EU, but they are voting on something related to European integration. For instance, Switzerland voting on whether they should implement migration quotas or not, and that impacts directly the kind of agreements that the country has with the European Union at large. Since 1972, when the first EU-related referendum was held in France, and it was related to enlargement of the EU back then, uh, there have been at least 60 EU-related referendums. And most of them are on membership. So whether a country should access the EU or whether it should leave the EU. But then it's mostly about, you know, the big questions, the important questions. It makes sense, right, that the big questions should be asked to the citizens. But at the same time, those are the questions that are the farthest away from them. Absolutely, you're right. And uh, I think this really poses a problem here. Most countries don't have a strong uh, legacy of direct democracy. So they are basically asked to, to vote on these super big issues, also like France, when France actually rejected the EU um, constitution and the Netherlands as well. They're asked like every other year about like these issues and then of course they vote on that and it's not really clear whether people are really voting on that topic or expressing their general will or the general discomfort with the current government in seat. And while, while my better counterexample is maybe Switzerland, again, where they are basically asked four times a year anyway. So they, are, they used to go to the ballot and cast their vote on whatever matter. And this could be like super tiny, unimportant stuff and could be super important stuff, but they're just known, uh, they have this regular like that process. Yeah, and, it's, a, um, it's part of their democratic tradition. Exactly. And, and I think Victory made a good point here that actually people are asked about like the biggest questions, although it's not really clear whether they're really have an informed opinion when it comes to these big questions because it's very hard also to, to boil down like the consequences of Brexit or the consequences of declining the EU constitution in a yes or a no. All I'm saying is, you know, if you ask me as a regular citizen, like, what is it that you have most knowledge about? That would be probably about the street I live on. So if you ask me, hey, what about uh, garbage collection? Uh, I could tell you a lot of things that could be improved about that because I, I see that on a daily basis. If you ask me about the territorial limits of my country, I will have a strong opinion about that, that's for sure, but I will know very little about it. So it just makes me question whether these big decisions should actually be left in the hands of regular citizens just because they are big and important, and yes, indeed, we should all want to have a say in that, or whether maybe referendums should be held at the local level and exercised by cities or states on matters that actually impact people's lives and that people actually know about. In any case, uh, I think most constitutions in the world, they require uh, a national referendum whenever they are planning on expanding their frontiers. Or giving away sovereignty to, to a larger EU-like uh, institution. Of course. So I want to ask you guys, have you ever taken part in a referendum? Never. Never? Never. I have. 
twice. <laughs> Congrats. So, so uh, Iceland has national referenda. Yes, it does. But let me tell you, um, we had two referendums, one in 2010 and one in 2011. And those were the first two that we had had since 1944, when we actually, oh my God, what is it called again? Became a federal state? Yeah. Anyways, you're, we gained, you're asking us about Iceland. Yeah. Well, we gained independence from Denmark. Uh, so we, so uh, we had a first referendum in 2010, and actually there were no laws about uh, referendums in Iceland when that referendum took place. So they actually had to make some laws about how to conduct referendums in Iceland so that they could actually have the referendum. So I thought it would be an interesting case to tell you a little bit about my experience and what happened in Iceland, because I think that there are a lot of lessons that you can uh, draw from that. So basically, the referendum was about about the ice safe dispute. Have you heard of the ice safe dispute? No. No. Okay. So as you know, in 2008, there was this huge financial crisis. I heard about that. You heard? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it hit Iceland the worst. You know, the prime minister came on television and said, you guys, uh, the banking system has collapsed completely. There is a great chance that the country will go bankrupt. Remember in these tough times to hug your loved ones. Basically, and, uh, we can close the shop. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> we can and close then, Iceland. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, oh, yeah. the shop. The shop. Ah, uh, the Iceland, the store. No, I'm Good talking about the country. Yeah, country. My country, the Iceland. <laughs> Anyways, uh, and then the broadcast, so it was a live emergency broadcast in the country. And then the prime minister just said, and God bless Iceland. And then <laughs> the, the, the and then broadcasting the stuff. Yeah, and then he dropped the mic. And everyone was just like, holy shit. I remember I was so scared. I actually went to the store and I bought a lot of canned goods. We had no idea what was going to happen. So the grocery stores were emptied and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, wow. one of the things that happened in this crash is that an Icelandic bank called Landsbankin had set up branches in the UK and in the Netherlands. So they had this internet service that was called iSafe. Uh, there, people could put you know deposits into the bank and they got huge interest rates. So, of course, uh, a lot of people put all of their money into this Icelandic bank. And then come the crash, of course, the bank went bankrupt and people could not get their money back. Oh, boy. So I uh, remember actually the, the reporting in Germany about uh, people, uh, about Germans having invested in, in this Icelandic bank. Yeah. So the thing is that according to the EEA regulation, so the European Economic Area, uh, governments uh, should have uh, financial guarantees for their banks so that if something like this happens, you're supposed to, uh, up to a certain level, uh, guarantee the deposits of uh, investors. So the thing is that they only guaranteed the Icelandic people and they basically said, sorry, no can do to the UK and Dutch depositors. And apparently the German. And those in German. Like, they only protected the people in Iceland. They said, we cannot do anything yeah, for... Iceland first. Iceland first, basically. So, of course, the UK and the Netherlands were super pissed at us. And even... Uh, this is so funny, because Gordon Brown was the prime minister at the time in the UK... And to retaliate against Iceland, he froze all Icelandic assets in the UK. Yeah. And to do that, he used the terrorist law that they had in the UK. So there was a list of uh, groups that were, had their assets frozen. It was like Al Qaeda, the Taliban, North Korea, and then Landsbankin, (laughs) (laughs) tiny Icelandic bank. So we were, we were very pissed about that. So. Let's say fast forward, I mean, there was this pots and pan revolution in Iceland. So there were huge protests, the government collapsed. We had new government coming in in 2009. And those uh, parties, they were very pro-EU. So they decided to apply for EU membership. 
And they decided to try to negotiate with the UK uh, governments and the Dutch government. And then they came to a deal that was called I Say One, which said that, you know, we would guarantee uh, those deposits up to a certain amount. The UK and Dutch government rejected this deal. They added that, you know, we had to repay in full uh, all of the deposits. So the Icelandic government at the time said, okay, fine, we'll do that. And then when the, it came to the president actually ratifying the law, that which would enable the government to reimburse the UK and Dutch government, because what I didn't mention before is that when we said no, we wouldn't repay those investors or those depositors, the UK and Dutch governments decided to do it themselves. And then they said, we've saved our people. So now you owe us a lot of money. <laughs> so when it came to ratifying that law, the president decided not to sign the law and call for a referendum. And that was the ah. first referendum in the country's history since its foundation, basically, in 1944. Oh, wow. And what were the results of that referendum? Okay, so the results were that we rejected the deal and we said, gave a big fuck you to the UK. Yeah, the how, how big was that fuck you? Uh, 98.10% said no oh my God. to paying them back. And the voter turnout was 62.7%. Ooh, that's a pretty big middle finger. Uh, it is a pretty big middle finger. But the thing is that I took part in this. So I had to make up my mind. Do we commit to our international obligations or honor our international obligations and pay them back, even though the country is completely bankrupt? And it would mean that, you know, we would never be able to get out of the recession. The reason that the Icelandic government didn't want to reimburse them is not because they didn't want to, it's because the country was bankrupt. There was no money. So it would send, you know, generations and generations into debt. So I had to make up my mind on this. And do you want to hear the question that I had to answer at 22 years old about this dispute? I'd love to. <clears throat> It's going to be a long one. Act number 1, 2010 provides for the amendment of Act number 96 of 2009. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry. On the Minister of Finance authorization on behalf of the Treasury to guarantee loans from depositors and investors from the UK and Dutch to cover oh, depositors God. at Landsbanki Island. I think it passed Act Number One, 2010, but the president refused confirmation. Should Law Number One, 2010, stay valid? You lost me the first time you mentioned Act. I still don't understand this question even, and I think at the time I had no idea of what this dispute was about. For me, it was: Will Iceland join the EU? Because of course, the UK and Dutch they said we will block your interest to the EU if you don't pay us back. And we had a emergency loan from the IMF coming in, and they said. Well, if you if you don't uh, pay them back, then we're not going to help you. So it was like, make Iceland bankrupt or not join the EU and not become bankrupt. So bankrupt joining or not bankrupt, but Basically, staying that's, not joining. Basically, that's how I made the decision. And I mean, I had no idea of what the EEA agreement at the time, what articles we were in violation of, blah, 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 blah. May I ask if you voted in favor or against? I don't remember for the first one. Oh, my God. I think I may have voted uh, against because it right. was so scary at the time. It just felt like, you know, we're going to die. Do you feel that you Icelanders made the right choice? In retrospect, yes. Because then, okay, they had to go back to the negotiating table with the UK and the Dutch. Results was a deal called I Save 3. Uh, <laughs> We received some kind of compromise on this deal. Uh, there is a new law passed by the parliament on how to reimburse uh, the UK and Dutch government. And the president refuses to sign again in 2011. So there's another referendum in 2011. In which you voted. In which I voted as well. That question is even more complicated at that time because they added all of the details into the question and everything. So Somebody there needs to be trained on how to make questions. 
Ah, uh, yes. But uh, yeah, and again, we rejected the law. It went before the AFTA court, which in 2013 ruled in our favor uh, that we were not obliged to uh, reimburse the UK and Dutch government. But in the end, we realized Landsbankin had enough assets in the end. So we basically were able in the end to pay off most it, of it. It's very interesting because the feeling that I get from listening to you mm. uh, tell this story is that this question was extremely relevant for all of you. You were all in a state of panic at yes. the time. Uh, this was meant to determine your future as a country and your lives as individuals. So you had to make an amazingly big effort to stay informed and mm -hmm. vote accordingly. And it sounds to me, from what you tell me, that you managed to overcome an extremely and perhaps unnecessarily complicated question. So you were able to see through the mm -hmm. still the essence of what was on the table and then vote with a clear conscience and be satisfied with what you did, even if you don't remember exactly what you voted for. Um, yeah. The second one I voted for, the I save three deal, because that by that time I was thinking, okay, we have to uh, be a trusted entity in the international community. And right. uh, if we ever want to join the EU, we have to see that we would honor all our obligations. But yes, I mean, those questions were so complicated and it, you know, most people, I still don't fully understand the dispute, but... You know. Right. I'm just thinking like whether people are actually able in general to see through what they have on the ballot. I there think, are so many there yeah. are so many factors out there that probably play a role on how you make a choice. You know, but when it comes to referendums, I think it matters a lot how you phrase the question or the sentence. I I do agree with that to an extent, but I was thinking here because the question is so complicated and explains all of the details. But when I entered that voting booth, I had already decided what I was going to vote for. So I just had to make sure to tick the right yes or no box that reflected what my feeling was. And I was wondering, does it matter that much how the question is phrased in the terms of not just not misunderstanding it, but would somebody change their mind or be affected in the voting booth just because how the question is phrased or have they already based on their gut feeling well, and, you know, well, all of these factors made uh, up their mind? I mean, if you already go into the booth with a decision in mind, you just have to do what you did, which is look for, you know, the option that you want to vote for. But I'm rather wondering about all the people who have not made up their minds yet and who are there, or maybe just go out and vote, and they don't even know what they're voting for. Though I would argue that most people that go to the um, referendum, they most likely know what's about, you know. So they heard of this deal, like, do Iceland should pay or not pay? They have some general idea. They might also have listened, uh, read the, the question maybe beforehand in the newspaper. So I think my point is maybe the exact wording I'm not sure how much this matters in the end. The question is really rather, what alternatives do you offer? Or what is the question really about? So I think in the in the SNA case, it might, might have been quite clear, but often you have connected questions, for example. And, and you had this example in, in one of the former episodes of, of our podcast uh, with... with, uh, with Macedonia. Exactly, where you basically put together two things. And and this is of course a, a problematic a problematic thing because once you say no or yes to to that question, basically you reject both options and not only one. So you you, you bundle the issues. And then my my second point is also the yes no issue. And and I think Brexit is maybe a perfect example where basically we we see currently in politics we have those people that want to remain. You have the hard Brexiteers and the soft Brexiteers. So there's a deadlock in politics. There's no real solution. But people just voted on yes or no. 
So people just vote on, on two options, but not three options, for example. Yeah, that's so, a very good point. So um, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that we should have like more options on on referendums, but I'm just raising this point here that uh, in contrast to a normal parliamentary process where you have like a lot of lobbying from all sides, and at some at some point you agree to a law, and then you vote on that law. Yeah, with the referendum, it's it's you have this yes no issue. Or yeah, no. but it's yeah. perhaps also oversimplified. Absolutely. Yeah, but then you might also have more extreme consequences of the vote rather than you know there are ten different. I mean, I don't think that the world is black and white. So like with Brexit, I mean, there could be like fifteen different options on what to do. Yeah, yeah. And then also because this is just a snapshot of public opinion. So there's no way of going back, you know, even with Brexit, they, you know, the following day, people were like, wow, okay, I actually, I voted for Brexit because I wanted to make a statement, but now I realized what the results were, and now I want to go back and change my vote. So what if the circumstances then change or different options become clear, but they're still bound by the results of the referendum or want to respect the results of the referendum, then you lose all of these nuances in uh, policymaking and finding solutions because you're bound by the yes or no attitude of the public, let's say. Well, that really depends a lot on how your institutional framework is built. Because the thing with referendums is sometimes they are held because the questions are very big and very important, but there are also cases in countries where they're constitutionally mandated on certain issues. I have another example here, and this is the Dutch referendum on the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement that was held in 2016. So just to give you a little bit of a background, we have to remember that in 2014, there was a lot of things going on in Ukraine. There was uh, this association agreement already on the table, and Ukrainians were very excited about the possibility of getting uh, closer to the EU and then President Viktor Yanukovych decided, uh, like last minute literally, not to sign this association agreement. And this gave way to the Ukrainian uh, revolution of 2014 and the subsequent invasion of Russia, taking Crimea and claiming that there was a good reason for them to be there. So in the midst of all this, uh, this agreement is put on hold. And what happens next is that Petro Poroshenko, who is the current president of Ukraine, is elected and he decides to sign on this. And for this association agreement to enter into force, it has to be ratified by all the member states of the European Union, the 28 of them. And then they start ratifying this thing. All of them do so. Uh, they're all very happy about it. In the middle of all this, in the spring of 2015, the Dutch parliament approves the Advisory Referendum Act, whereby it allows referendums to be held on adopted bills or ratification laws if there is enough interest. And that enough interest is sparked by 300,000 or more signatures on a particular issue. So a lot of people in the Netherlands are worried about this association agreement and they start gathering signatures because they are worried that maybe Ukraine wants to potentially become an EU member country and they are not sure that the EU money should be, as they said, quote-unquote, wasted. They're also worried about destabilizing the level playing fields in terms of poultry production. Uh, they're also worried about signing an association agreement with a country that is currently at war. Uh, there are many, many issues. There are a lot of, you know, also fake news going around. But the thing is, they gather these 300,000 signatures and they vote on whether they are in favor or against the act of approving the association agreement between the EU and Ukraine. And turns out that the threshold was very low. It was 30% of the turnout for the uh, referendum to be valid. And even though it was non-binding, 
that threshold was reached and an overwhelming two-thirds, 61%, said that they were against this association agreement. Now, because the next year, in 2017, the Dutch government was holding national elections, they decided to actually take the results of the referendum into account. They had already approved the association agreement, but they say, okay, 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 let's put it in a halt and let's go over it. And what this triggered was a discussion between the Dutch government and the other 27 member states of the EU on the terms of the agreement. And the way they resolved this was by adding an addendum to the association agreement, where the 28 member states agreed on certain very specific provisions, such as committing to not giving Ukraine the status of a candidate member state to the EU, no obligation for military aid or security guarantees, or no additional economic support uh, by member states to Ukraine. So kind of to, you know, please the Dutch. And the funny thing here is that the whole Dutch government was in favor of this association agreement. The parliament, you know, the prime minister, businesses, they were all in favor of it. And then it was a minority of 300,000 citizens. Well, actually, signatures went above 400,000 in the end. But 400,000 citizens initiated this. And then the people who voted decided against this association agreement. And I think in this particular case, it was the regulation around the referendum that allowed for this referendum to put on hold for two years because finally this agreement entered into force in September 2017, something that was affecting the whole union. And perhaps this is when the details of the threshold level, whether the referendum is binding or not binding, etc., etc., if clarified, can actually make referendums a more useful tool. Yeah, I think that the lack of clarity about what referendums mean and how we should react to them uh, could definitely, I mean, in my country at least, I mean, we had no clue. And I mean, I, I find it shocking that there is, for example, within the EU, you said that there is no regulation about how... T- well, there is no procedure for a referendum at the EU level. Ah, at the EU level. Yeah, okay. because it's probably an, yeah. it's, it's national sovereignty. No, but then... Uh, Although you have the citizen initiative. So if you gather one million signatures, yeah, yeah. you can actually call for the commission to do something on a certain issue, but it's not a referendum. I would still argue that the point you're making here is, or the, the, the example you're giving here is an interesting case because I think this highlights in an interesting way how referendum may really pose a problem, but also are a good way to corporate citizen in the policymaking process. Of course, because this is- it was not called by a prime minister, like in the Brexit case, who just wanted to uh, get more political support or to make a situation clear for him but actually 300,000 people signed that but then of course uh, this is like an international treaty so how are you treating the treaty <laughs> basically then further on if one member state is blocking that I mean, I mean it's uh, especially if it's done by a popular vote although there is a provision in the Dutch law that citizens cannot request a referendum on matters they committed to under international law or international agreements in this case what they were rejecting was the ratification of their parliament of this particular association agreement before it entered into force. So they were allowed to do that. Once uh, it has entered into force, like now the Dutch citizens could never be able to actually pull out. So in practical terms, I think that the addendum does not change at all what the association agreement stands for because it is about economics, it's about policy, it's about a tighter integration between the EU and Ukraine. But it did bring this agreement to a halt when Ukraine probably needed it the most. And there were a lot of factors there playing a strong role in the outcome. Like, I wonder whether the situation in Ukraine would be slightly different if this association agreement had entered into force a year before. 
So I'm just wondering, after this discussion that we have had, how you guys feel about referendums. For me, I think referendums are a necessary tool to have uh, when it comes to these fundamental questions, because even though they are flawed in a way, and there are some uh, there are pros and cons to referendums, as with any form of governing, you know, or and democracy. And I think that just to create a consensus in society and sort of an acceptance of these fundamental changes being made, like entering the EU or not, you know, if you would do that single-handedly by a single party, I just, I'm afraid that, you know, it could have dire societal consequences if it goes against the will of the people. So even though human beings are flawed and they vote with their feelings and they don't always understand all of the details of, uh, of what they're voting on, I think maybe having people accept and being okay with the outcomes uh, and these constitutional things is more important than, you know, what actually are the consequences because the other way around, it could be uh, dire. But for me, I think that when the robots take over and we can just have AI run things through an algorithm, <laughs> maybe that would be even better. <laughs> I don't know. Because humans are very bad at th this kind of decision making. And it's hard to counter feelings with facts. So you can take Brexit, for example. I mean, I doubt an AI would have voted this way. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why, in general, I agree with you, Harper, but this is why... I would add some safeguards to referenda. We have to make sure that certain standards are are there in place. We have to be sure that a significant amount of people um, turn up, cast their vote. We need maybe an, a majority of 55% or 60% and not like the Brexit 52%, which is... It's uh, too little of yeah, a difference. It, it, could be, it could be just a random, you know, random yeah, error. Basically, next exactly. day, it's f uh, the other way around. So this is not enough. Um The Swiss, for example, have an interesting double majority system where not only the majority of people have to uh, say yes, but also the majority of cantons, of regions. Mm -hmm. So uh, UK is not very federal, but you know you could also think about like districts. Uh, all of districts have to have to oh, majority of districts have to agree to that. And um, yes, if these things are in place, we could we could still use this tool. Although I am also maybe also coming from my German background, in general, not a big fan of Ferrando. And and also like to, to stress the point that maybe we have other tools which which go beyond referenda that are in the end more participatory and more effective. Instead of using that referendum type, because you said, yes, they solve political division, but they can also create political division. So sometimes, yes, you need a referendum to basically say, no, we solve this issue for once and for all. And, and, and actually Cameron thought that with Brexit, but actually what happened is he actually created more political division by this exactly. referendum. I like what you're saying, because then it means that the referendum is just, again, a tool within a toolbox that should probably be bigger and it should bring to the table like all the things like citizen dialogues and uh, exactly things also at the local level if we use a referendum as a tool i think it has to be also made sure that it is used in a procedural way like the swiss do and in other cases when for example the eu wants to join a country wants to join the eu of course ask the people that makes sense but We are also seen a lot of times in Greece, for example, but also in the UK, that politicians just just start a referendum for for their own political reasons to get more power, basically, and to and also in Italy, for example, uh, with the with the election reform. Sometimes this is just used to 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 strengthen their own position, and the end doesn't work often. Like often, it actually does not work. Sometimes it does work, and then I think it's an it's a problematic tool because then populistic governments use populistic referendum to to strengthen their own position. And I mean, we have seen this in 
democracies. Germany. We see we see this. We have seen this in, of course, in dictatorships, not yeah. only in, not only in the Nazi Germany, but also in other dictatorships. Yeah. And for example, also in Germany, they did this often together. So they said, do you agree to this question? And do you vote for our own party? So basically... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bundling of questions. Exactly. And then, of course, no one votes anyway, no, because of, of, of sanctions. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, okay, use the a referendum, but use it in an in a careful way and and not in a political populistic way. Yeah, because I want to come back to the Swiss example and them having referendums so frequently, but I think it also matters on which kind of issues we do have a referendum. And you could make the argument that because of the direct democracy system in, in Switzerland, that they have had slower social progress than in other EU countries. So for example, the the right of women to vote I mean, they only gained the vote in 1970 and even in the last canton in 1990 because, of For course, really? the men are the ones that were voting in a referendum on whether women should get the right to vote. So they rejected the women's right to vote several times because, actually, of course. Actually, you know? it's, sorry, it's 71 and 91. Just oh, one. Lord. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> close, close. <laughs> one But, year. Uh, anyways, I think that referendum... The problem with direct democracy is the tyranny of the majority, and that's why we changed our system to have representative democracy as well. So I think on issues that relate to the rights of minorities, there it can be quite problematic uh, to have referendums because if you're voting on the rights of uh, immigrants, let's say in your country, equal rights of uh, foreigners, or or in the case of Swiss government, women, you know, of course migrants don't have the right to vote and then the women didn't have the right to vote. So I'm just saying there does not always have to be a direct correlation between how many referendums you have and how much direct democracy you have and the state of democracy in your country. Because indeed, Switzerland is not number one in terms of democracy in the, in the world. They're, they rank high in the top 10 usually, but there's not necessarily a correlation between referendums, direct democracy and the state of democracy and equal rights, let's say, in a, in a country. In my case, I just fear that referendums are a way of putting a number to something and then making choices based on that number. And then there are a lot of things that get lost. So there is very little discussion. And I think like anything else in politics, you need to invest in that. You need to invest in your citizens and you need to invest in them engaging in discussions so that they can actually make informed choices. And then whatever democratic system that you have, it's going to function better when you have engaged people. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, okay. No, I'm just saying, I think that we wrapped up, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I thought you, it was a nice conclusion. You, That's you why were, I didn't you were, ask, you were asking anything. us about our opinion on the referendum. Uh, And we gave you the opinion. I agree. I think it's a good moment to wrap up. So <laughs> thank you so much for the discussion today. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, where we are partying all the time yes <laughs> yeah it was fun talking to you guys and uh, hope to be back in Brussels soon for another yeah. episode it's much better when you're here if you like the content of this episode make sure you hit the subscribe button If you enjoy listening to EU Untangled, the best way to help it grow bigger, better, and greater is by sharing it with your friends and leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For constant updates, you can also follow EU Untangled on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure you check out our awesome website, podworld.org untangled. You'll find tons of interesting information in the show notes and a lot of cool links. See you next time. 
So a round of fun facts now. Victor, go ahead. Uh, well, the only fun fact that I that I have is that since the year 2000, Switzerland has held more than 50 referendums, and their success rate is 75%, which is impressive. Very well-educated Swiss people. Success rate is 75%, interesting. Yeah, I think they measure the success rate as the percentage of people who say yes. Oh, interesting. Or agree <laughs> with so the we, question or because, statement. Because, okay, interesting. Okay, I also have a... Fun fact on Switzerland. We already mentioned before this canton that mm -hmm. gave the vote to right to women, actually local vote. So they got the federal vote in 1971, but to vote on local issues, they gave it to the women in 1991. So well, 20 years ago. Well, Better late than never. Very late. And But they are, what they also do is they're still voting by hand. To, uh, like they yeah. to, I saw to, that to choose, on Square. They just yeah, read up a law on the show of hands. To choose the representative in the council of the state. Isn't that nice? So it's, I think, one of the rare examples of direct democracy. I think it's wow. an example of very efficient direct democracy. <laughs> They're just like, show of hands, okay, law is passed. <laughs> you know that I also read somewhere that there was a canton in Switzerland that until recently, I mean recently, like a few years ago, gave the right to its citizens to vote on who would get Swiss citizenship. So foreigners would just come in, you know, they would draw like a profile of, uh, of the person and then people would gather and they would be like, okay, who votes in favor of granting Swiss citizenship to this person? And then people would raise their hands. Oh, and, wow, and this yeah. sounds weird. Huh? Uh, and I also had read some time, and I was trying to Google it just now to verify that this is true, but uh, then I'll leave it up to our listeners to check out if this is true or not. But Swiss constitution actually bans absinthe. Like they had a referendum on banning on absinthe. Yeah, the the alcoholic drink absinthe. So it's an interesting fact. Okay, if it's true. Well, <laughs> which is the opposite of fact. I know. Thanks for giving homework to our listeners, sharps. 